I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, recording to you live, not live, actually not live, but from a slightly less squeaky chair, so that's pretty good. Anyway, it is episode 20 of the Wong Takes, who would have ever thought we've gotten here a few months back. On November 21st, 2017, what a time to be alive. Sports is hopping. Let's get into it. First of all, we're going to talk about the Celtics' win streak. Wow. After starting 0-2, the Celtics have rattled off a 16-game win streak over the course of the last few weeks. I think this is the longest win streak since, I guess, the Warriors 25-0 or whatever it was to start off the season a few years back. And this win streak includes wins over those Warriors in impressive fashion, the Spurs, the Bucks, the Thunder, and the Raptors, along with some other mediocre teams, but those were the highlights of the teams they beat and probably would shut down some arguments of, oh, they haven't beaten anyone. Now this team, we've seen over the course of this win streak, and we kind of knew coming in, this team is going to be deep throughout, because we can't forget that they're missing, even through this win streak, they're missing Gordon Hayward, who is an all-star, possibly an all-NBA second- or third-team type player. But without him, they still have veteran all-stars in Kyrie Irving, and Al Horford has become a more versatile player than ever. And then they've also got athletic rookies like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So when you have that mix of, of veteran leadership and then youth just kind of fun at the game, you have that complete mix of players that you need to build a successful team. And also that this win streak has really shown what kind of a juggernaut this team can be going forward, especially when it comes to the playoffs, because in this in this series or in this win streak, they've been really good on both ends. The offense has been hasn't been stellar, but it's definitely been enough. And they've gotten big performances from guys when they needed to, like Kyrie, who had 47, I think, a night ago to keep the streak alive. And they're still going to have time to gel also, even though they're not exactly perfect right now. And their defense has probably been what's keeping them in the streak. They held the Warriors to 88 points, the high-scoring Warriors who had only scored less than 100 points in like two games when they, when they met them last week. They only had 60 points in the final three quarters, and they only had 20 points in the fourth quarter when that's when you, you need to close out games. They also held the Warriors to 31.3% uh, three-point percentage, and they also came back from 17 points down in that game, so that shows that the heart of this Cavaliers team is there, or I mean the Celtics team, excuse me, is there. They're not gonna they're not gonna back down if they get down, which is what you want in a championship fight type team. Now this team, it's gonna be fun not only down the stretch, but also in the playoffs when they go up against the Cavs. Because Isaiah Thomas is gonna be coming back at some point, and we haven't really seen like Isaiah returning to Cleveland or how the Cleve or the how the Boston fans will receive him and the anger that might be there from the team people that had, had Isaiah Thomas on their team before he left. And the same thing with Kyrie. We've kind of seen it already, but we're going to see that hostility coming back again. And that team, that Cavs team is going to be really good with Isaiah and LeBron and, and others like Jay Crowder. So the Celtics are going to have a tough time getting past the Cavs, but this win streak has shown that they can beat some of the elite teams in the league. Now when they do meet up with the Cavs, since Gordon Hayward is out for the year, that's going to put the Celtics at a disadvantage, but they will have already worked without him for the entire year. So it's not like they're going to be ill-prepared when they meet the Cavs, so... I think they're going to meet in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I'm beyond some kind of injury, and I'm really looking forward to it. And another note about the Celtics team, they're really going to be a contender for years and years to come. Because, as I said, Gordon Hayward 
He's out right now, but he's going to return and make this team even more deep at all five. You're going to have skill guys at all five positions with Horford, uh, Brown, Tatum, um, Hayward, and Kyrie Irving. And this team has only played together for a few months, so it's not like this is their this is the, their perfect lineup. They're gonna get they're gonna have time to get better, have time to work on that offensive game just to get in rhythm. Like we've seen teams, newly formed super teams, struggle a little bit, like the Thunder or even the Cavs. So this team is only gonna get better, and they've already had a 16 game win streak this early in the season, which is mighty impressive. Next, kind of a meaty topic. We're going to talk about Trump and sports for the second time in this show's history, and I think it deserves it this week because we have two topics. First off, the Angelo ball and the ball fiasco and Trump and all that. So what happened? Well, Leangelo ball and two other UCLA freshmen, whose names escape me right now, were arrested in China on Tuesday, November 7th for stealing merchandise from three stores. They were released a week later and subsequently suspended from the UCLA basketball program indefinitely. You're probably wondering, this happened like a week, a week and a half ago. Why are we talking about this now? Well, as the title of this topic would mention, would indicate, the day after, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, Do you think the three UCLA basketball players will say thank you to President Trump? They were headed for 10 years in jail, end quote. So, in response to that, the players thanked him at a press conference but LeVar Ball, in his nature, the father of LeAngelo Ball, in case you don't know somehow, said that it wasn't really a big deal that Trump or that Trump had, quote, brought them back. And then Trump fired back to LeVar Ball saying, quote, now that the three basketball players are out of China and saved from years in jail, repeating that again, LeVar Ball, the father of LeAngelo, is unaccepting of what I did for his son and that shoplifting is no big deal. I should have left them in jail, end quote. And I think that's the one that drew a lot of controversy. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first of all, what Leangelo did, I think everyone can agree, was incredibly dumb because you're not only not in the United States, you're not only in a foreign country, but you're in a country like China where I guess, shall we say, democratic processes are not exactly the norm there. So what do you what what's the end goal? You get a couple of sunglasses that your dad could probably buy for you anyway, and you're gonna have to steal it in China. You can't even like pay or like just what are you doing, Leangelo? But beyond that, I don't think that they needed to say thanks to President Donald Trump because there isn't really a way that Trump actually influenced their departure because they did. he did talk with the Chinese premier a few days earlier. But if anything, he would have left them in jail despite Trump. At least I think that's what would have happened if he had been like, no, release them or else whatever. China's a rising power. is no real threat there. However, that being said, I if I were in their shoes and I had just done that and I had been told by the president to thank him, knowing that this was already putting me in a bad light and I was already in trouble with the UCLA program, I probably would have done what they did and just thanked him and just been all like contrite and all just to avoid the controversy because I don't think you need this type of incident lingering around you forever. But then... They did the right thing, in my view, but then here comes LeVar Ball and goes at him, and then now they're getting into a war of words. I must say, it is interesting, although maybe that's not the best time to say it, but it's interesting to watch these two big personalities go at each other because both of them are bombastic. Both of them are not bad speakers, I guess. They just, they're just they just loud, and they want to say a lot of things, and neither of them want to back down. 
And I really think, and I think everyone thinks that nothing good can come of this because ni- neither of them is going to get that upper hand because neither of them is going to back down and they're both going to want to keep it in the news as evidenced by LeVar Ball going on CNN a few days ago or I think it was yesterday and being like, no, I, I'm not going to thank him and now Trump's probably going to respond and it's going to go back and forth. But that's one story of wars of words. Let's get to another one that's not necessarily a war of words, but it's a war nonetheless. Marshawn Lynch, before the Raiders-Patriots game in Mexico City, sat for the Mexican, or stood for the Mexican National Anthem, and sat for the Star-Spangled Banner, as he usually does. And of course, continuing the theme of player protest, Trump responded with, quote, on Twitter, quote, Marshawn Lynch of the NFL's Oakland Raiders stands for the Mexican Anthem and sits down to booze for our National Anthem. Great disrespect. Next time, NFL should suspend him for the remainder of the season. Attendance and ratings way down, end quote. So let's go through each part of that. For starters, with the anthem protests and the suspensions and all, I still am on the strong side that the NFL shouldn't outlaw anthem protests, not only for the freedom of speech and that whole gist that we've heard so many, so many times, but even from this perspective of, like, say, the owners, what what's hurting the owners is not necessarily the protests themselves, but the fact that those protests are getting so much attention. Like, if these were just happening at the games and people were just, like, every once in a while writing a news article about it, it's not going to make the same impact as if every time a national anthem plays at a football game, the cameras are shown on the players who are kneeling, which is really what is maybe drawing these fans away from football. So from the owner's perspective, even if you just let it happen, we've seen that if you don't talk about it, the coverage of it just declines and declines until something happens again, whether it be Donald Trump speaks or a new incident happens or or massive new players kneel or for whatever reason. But if you just let the same players who have always been kneeling kneel, they can still try to convey their message without trying to hurt your without hurting your bottom line. And we've seen from players also the from the morality standpoint during Veterans, Veterans Day weekend, we saw that they're not kneeling because of the military, they're kneeling because of injustices and all that jazz that we've talked about plenty of times before. And on the other side, with the attendance and ratings way down, I don't think that's true because of the anthem protests. I think the cause-effect link isn't really there. I think the concussions and the rise of the NBA have also contributed to these lower ratings because you draw both of them will draw fans away from football and now the NBA is coming back up again and your line storyline your long storylines etc but we know that since the the numbers about the NFL ratings dropping do support Trump's stance even if it's not because of the of the anthem protests so he's going to continue to fixate on these anthem protests as long as the numbers are there he's going to continue to do it and he also has some sympathetic figures to his cause and some owners, as we saw from the Bob McNair story a few weeks ago, and Jerry Jones has continued to say, look, we're not going to support uh, people who kneel. So this is going to be an ongoing story, not only with the president, but with Marshawn and with Leangelo, I'm sure, and we're probably going to have to end up talking about it again at some point. Next. Wow. College football week 12. Uh, this week was what's known as Cupcake Week, or I, I don't know if it's actually called that. I just saw it on a website somewhere. But either way, it's where the teams, all the good teams, don't really play good teams. But with that in mind, let's get to the scores anyway. By the way, the college football playoff rankings are out as of recording this. Alabama's in one, Miami and Clemson flip-flop, and, or no, Miami's at two, Clemson's at three, Oklahoma drops down to four, but we're going to do the scores with the rankings from last week, so let's go. 
Number one, Alabama beat Mercer 56-0. Number 16, Mississippi State beat Arkansas 28-21. Number six, Auburn beat UL Monroe 42-14. Number 12, TCU beat Texas Tech 27-3. Number 23, Northwestern shut out Minnesota 39-0. Number three, Miami beat Virginia 44-28. Number 15, UCF beat Temple 45-19. Number 21, Memphis beat SMU 66-45. Number two, Clemson crushed the Citadel 61-3. Number seven, Georgia beat Kentucky 42-13. Oklahoma State was upset by Kansas, 45-40, ending their playoff hopes. Number 4, Oklahoma beats Kansas, 41-3. Number 8, Notre Dame beats Navy, 24-17. Number 9, Ohio State beats Illinois, 52-14. Number 17, Michigan State beats Maryland, 17-7. Number 10, Penn State beats Nebraska, 56-44. Number 20, LSU beat Tennessee, 30-10. We're almost done, I promise. Wake Forest beat number 19, surprise, NC State, 30-24. Number 11 beat UCLA, 28-23 in a rivalry game. Number 22, Stanford beat Cal in a rivalry game, 17-14. Number 25, Boise State beats Air Force, 44-19. And number 18, Utah, or number 18, Washington beat Utah, 33-30. Now let's get to the only game, I think, between ranked teams of the week. Number 5, Wisconsin beating number 24, Michigan, 24-10. And we see that this... Wynn does not bump Wisconsin into the playoff picture right now. That's a little bit surprising to me, but let's go. The first half in this game was full of defense and ended 7-7. The only Wisconsin score was on a 50-yard punt return, and Michigan actually moved the ball more but fumbled inside the Wisconsin 5 on one possession. Unfortunate. Wisconsin only needed one burst to score a victory, which was a 7-play, 77-yard drive, a punt, a five-play, a 61-yard drive ending with a big play at the end of the third quarter, and that would end up that two touchdowns would be, end up being the difference. Now, for Michigan, this has kind of been an unfortunate season for them because they lost their starting QB, Wilton Spate, in the fourth game versus Purdue, which is a tough loss, of course, losing your starting quarterback for any team. And their three losses have been to quality conference opponents. But those are Michigan State, Penn State, and Wisconsin. So when you, when you are in a conference as, as top-heavy, as stacked at the top as the Big Ten, you're going to need to win those games to make the playoffs. So even though it's tough that those losses were to such good teams, Michigan, if they want to be an elite team, is going to have to win those games. However, on the bright side for Michigan, Wilton Spate, I think he's going to return for his senior year, especially coming off an injury. I don't think NFL scouts are going to want to see him now. And they do have a good class coming in. As of a few days ago, they're ranked 13th in the country by 24-7 sports. So Michigan is a program that should get a good recruiting class, and it looks like this year is no exception. Meanwhile, for Wisconsin, we're going to stay at this year. Their last two weeks, they won versus Iowa, who was ranked at the time, and Michigan, two quality, uh, quality conference games. And that bolsters their resume, of course. The only problem is those are really the only two good wins on their resume. And I don't know, I guess I'm not surprised they were, weren't bumped up to number four because their defense in this game did look good for the committee. However, their resume just isn't good enough. And I know we're kind of like, we want to talk about what's in the now, but if your resume hasn't been good enough over the course of the year, it's not going to keep you in. However, 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 it is win out and in for them at this point, I believe, because they would need to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game in order to stay undefeated and win out. And I think that resume is good enough to get them into the top four. But it's going to be tough because they're also facing teams. They're going to face teams who are, will be in their conference championship games as well. But this win is still bad news for Miami and Oklahoma and Clemson. Those three teams really on the bubble because they can't lose anymore now that Wisconsin has beaten Iowa and Michigan and looks to go to their conference championship game. 
It's just one more worry in the hat of those teams. Now, let's get to some general playoff notes, I guess, because that was the only big game of the week. It was an otherwise pretty dull week in college football. But next week is going to be exactly the opposite, because next week's Iron Bowl, Auburn and Alabama, is going to be the biggest Auburn Bowl, or Iron Bowl, since maybe since the kick six, when I think Alabama was one and Auburn was four or something like that. But this is like one versus six. Win, a win by Alabama would pretty much secure them a playoff spot because I think a one-loss Alabama team, even if they lose to Georgia in the SEC championship game, a win over Auburn and the, the strength that they've shown, I think that's enough to keep them in. However, Wisconsin's win, again, makes us a little more tenuous, so it's really shaping up to be tough for the committee. But a win by Auburn would be crazy for the playoff picture. That'd be even worse for the committee because this Auburn team would have a chance to beat Georgia in the SEC championship game to become a two-loss team. We talked about this last week that has beaten Georgia, Alabama, who both were number one at the time, and then Georgia again in the conference championship game. And Alabama, it would be tough for them because now they wouldn't be in the conference championship game because Auburn would have the tiebreaker over them and be tied in conference play. So now does the committee, how, how does not being able to play another quality opponent, Alabama's schedule isn't exactly the toughest. It's pretty hard, especially in the Southeastern Conference where, to quote, paraphrase Nick Saban, every game is tough except for Vanderbilt. It's, it's going to be tough for Alabama to get in, I guess, with that one loss, but here we go. And if all others went out, this is shaping to be a fun one. The, the conference championship game week, we're going to cover that immensely because the SEC game will be Georgia versus Auburn or Alabama, and the ACC game will be Clemson versus Miami, and those games are probably going to determine playoff spots as far as the winner is in the playoff, the loser is out. So those are going to be, everyone's going to be on the edge of their seat. That's going to be an immense game. I cannot wait. And let's go to the NFL Week 11. First off, the Vikings beat the Rams 24-7 in an interesting game. After a touchdown drive to start the games, the Rams didn't score the rest of the game. Todd Gurley was held to only 37 yards rushing. 20 of them were on the Rams' very first drive in which they scored. The Rams have not fared well so far against really good defensive teams. This loss to the Vikings, the Vikings' defense is fifth in opposing points per game. They're one of their other losses. I think it might be their only other loss. They lost the Seahawks 16 to 10. No, I don't know. 16 to 10, who are seventh in the league in opposing points per game. That that vaunted Seattle defense, of course. So those are two teams where they faced up against really good defenses and they couldn't get anything going, scoring a combined 17 points. They're going to face the Saints and the Eagles, who are sixth and tenth respectively in opposing points per game, and the Seahawks again. So those these are the type of teams that the Rams may face in the playoffs. So they're going to need to do not only a better job on offense, getting spreading the ball across, establishing the run game, but also just staying on the field because in this game they only had 38% of the possession, which doesn't sound too drastic, but it really is, 38-62. to 62. And of course creating running room for Todd Gurley to establish the run game to help the pass game out. And the loss of Robert Woods, otherwise one of their really good wide receivers, is going to be tough for them as well. Now the Vikings, wow, what a game for them. I think this game showed that they really have what it takes to win the NFC because their defense is kind of talented everywhere. Like, you have one of the best corners in the NFC in Xavier Rhodes. You have veteran safeties and D linemen to help anchor the front and the back. And they really showed that in this game because they held the best offense in the NFL to only seven points. This offense had averaged 36 points over the last four games. They held them to seven. Just think about that. 
Now they have a division test coming up against the Lions on Thanksgiving. That's going to be a really fun one. And then the Falcons and the Panthers. So those are some more good offenses that this Vikings D is going to get tested by. And as far as on offense, Carolina's D is going to be tough for Case Keenum, who's kind of been able to, I'm not going to say skate by, he's been good. But he hasn't been Teddy Bridgewater, even Sam Bradford good. So having to face that tough defense is going to be an interesting go for him. And the second game and final game we're going to talk about is the Falcons beating the Seahawks 34-31 on Monday night. Last night, that would be. The Falcons got off to a really quick start, scoring 24 points in the first half while comparatively going against that Seahawks defense. Seahawks had some mistakes. They failed in a fake field goal at the end of the first half. That, you know, could have been the difference. That was the difference. And then missed a 52-yard field goal at the end of the game that would have been, that would have tied it. Now the Seahawks, they really seem, I don't know, it's maybe just me, but they seem kind of more vulnerable this year because we saw what happened when they have injuries to their secondary. The Seahawks defense is really deep, but when you lose uh, Richard Sherman, their star cornerback, Shaquille Griffin, their backup, or their second cornerback, and safety Cam Chancellor, we saw that Atlanta was able to exploit that because Julio Jones and Mohamed Sanu, though they didn't have huge games, they had big plays early and exploiting that secondary, and that was enough. And a long touchdown to tight end Levine Toilolo that put the Falcons, I think it was with an 11-point lead or something like that, that was this Earl Thomas just got looked off to one side and couldn't come back fast enough, and having a guy like Cam Chancellor have two in the back would have really helped, and the corner got beat on that play, so it was just total breakdown in coverage. And this is their second consecutive home loss, going back to that vulnerability, was Week 9 versus the Redskins was their first one, and now this week, I think teams are getting used to CenturyLink Field almost. It's a combination of that, of course, the injuries, and just teams playing more at CenturyLink. And that kind of breaks that spell of invincibility that they have at home because it's a tough environment. And there's in a few years ago when they, I think, went 8-0 at, at home and, like, really ludicrous record on the road, too. It's just, like, you can't beat this team when you come in. But now I think people are starting to realize, yeah, you can. All you have to do is just limit Russell Wilson, limit those big plays, and play enough play enough good offense just to stay in it, and you're going to have a chance to win, especially with the kicking not as good as it was last year under Blair Walsh. But yeah, as Russell Wilson, he's really going to help the Seahawks team going forward because he really keeps the team in the game with those scramble plays. He had one that could have been a first down and been a big play. He almost even tied the game after being down 11 with less than five minutes left. So the Seahawks team, I, I don't, I, it always seems like they're out of it, but then they're never out of it because they have Russell Wilson, they have Pete Carroll, and they have that stellar defense. Meanwhile, the Falcons are back, boy. After losing 4-5 and five to the Bills, Dolphins, Patriots, and Panthers, the pa- Falcons have beaten the Cowboys, who were injured, and the Seahawks on the road. And this win for the Falcons was a good all-around win because not only the offense, which is world-renowned, but the defense played well with the fumble return touchdown and interception in opposing territory, and then the fake field goal that they were prepared for, I guess, helped them win the game. But they're going to need that defense to also play in upcoming games as well, with the Vikings, the Saints twice, and the Panthers, who are really good offenses, as well as in the playoffs, when and if they get there. Now, that's that game, but next week we will have a season update, so get ready for that. Now let's get to fan questions. Uh, we got a bunch from Zach, but we're going to go for a two, few of them. First of all, why there should be an expansion to an 18 playoff? Well, he's very uh, certain about that, but and I share his viewpoint, so I guess I will go with that reasoning. 
you get first of all you get to include all Power Five conferences in the playoffs. So the Big Twelve, the Big Ten, the ACC, the SEC, and the Pac-12. At the moment, you're going to have to either shut one out or include if you include two from the same conference, like might happen with the ACC then you have to shut two Power 5 conferences out, and those are good conferences where even two losses isn't the worst thing in the world. And that means also that good teams can get in, even if they have fluky losses, because we've seen really good teams, just because they have that second loss, even if it was a fluke, that's keeping them out of the playoff, and the committee really doesn't like that second loss. And I think people have been like, how can you have an eight-team playoff? Because you don't want to add another game to the schedule because it's college kids, and they're going to get hurt. And I totally agree with that. And I think the way to do it is to just get rid of the FCS games because, and if FCS is the second division of college football, so like that's a division where uh, FBS teams, which is the top division, just go in just to beat up on teams and get that counted toward bowl eligibility. I think you can get rid of that game because I know it's good for the FCS teams, but they can find other ways to make money if they really want to. And it might, and having an eight-team playoff might like de-incentivize teams to play an FCS game. Because because that way you have a less you have a worse win on your schedule, and FBS teams are not going to want to play an FCS team because they're going to want to pile up their schedule, and plus and they make more money when they play FBS teams. So it's more money for college football as a whole, even if you're playing one less game for most of the teams. Because those playoff games would also that's that's four extra playoff games. It's going to rake in a ton a ton of money. So I just like that as a whole. Meanwhile. NCAA basketball Final Four predictions are the other thing that he asked. Well, that's a crapshoot, and I'm not very informed about college basketball until we get to the the uh, bracket season, March Madness, because that's when I go all out. But here we go. I'm going to go Duke, Notre Dame, Kentucky, and Arizona coming out of the West. Arizona just because they're in the West. He also asked for my college basketball player of the year. Um, I would have no idea, except I really like Grayson Allen just because He's a senior coming back this year, and he's already led his team to, um, I think it was a championship, and he's a really good player. He's got that leadership under Coach K, and I think he'll win player of the year this year, and he had a 37-point performance in opening night, so that too. Next question. Oh, we're going for a lot of time today. Uh, In light of the recent Tyrod Taylor, Nathan Peterman fiasco, do you think that African-American quarterbacks are held to a higher standard compared to white quarterbacks? That's from Evan. That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't personally, I don't think it's a higher standard necessarily, but without a doubt, it's a different standard because if you think about it, I'm not trying to like play to stereotypes or anything, but black quarterbacks are, are usually more assumed to be like quote unquote dual threat quarterbacks where guys like Cam Newton or Tyrod Taylor or Deshaun Watson, as opposed to guys like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, who they're, they're not slow. You just don't expect them to roll out of the pocket and run for like a 15 yard gain. And if you think about the phrase, too, deceptive speed, like, you hear that sometimes, but you don't normally hear it um, said to black quarterbacks. It's normally to white quarterbacks because we assume that. So I think that's part of it where we think black quarterbacks are going to be dual-threat quarterbacks, so when they're not, we're kind of surprised or we don't really think of their abilities as much within the pocket and vice versa with white quarterbacks where you don't expect, you don't look for that speed in them. You think of them more as pocket passers. And also, I think the rarity of African-American quarterbacks means that they're scrutinized more as well. Like, if you had, I don't know, an alien quarterback, they wouldn't, if we would pay more attention to that quarterback, because that would be weird, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're holding them to a higher standard. It just means that we, we see them more because it's, it's just not something you see too often, so I think that's also part of it.
Um, finally, from Michael, do you agree with Baker Mayfield's punishment? Okay, so Baker Mayfield, uh, in a heat after a heated during a heated game with Kansas, just uh, made some obscene gestures and yelled some obscene things, and in response, uh, Oklahoma internally decided to not start him in his last game in Norman, and also had him lose his captaincy for this game. And I really think that's an appropriate punishment because what the university is trying to do here, it's pretty clear, is that. They're trying to punish him as much as possible without actually punishing the team. And that's exactly what this does. Because by losing his captaincy, you kind of hurt him, make him learn his lesson. But this doesn't do anything to the actual team. And when we might say not starting him does something, but really all that means is like they're gonna not have they're gonna have him because this is still a big game against West Virginia. Oklahoma's number five, the number five or number four team in the country. They're in the playoff. But what's gonna have to happen is Oak or Baker Mayfield's gonna sit out for like maybe one or two plays and then come in in the third play, and then he'll play the rest of the game. So, And Baker Mayfield didn't look contrite during the interview, so I think this punishment did its job. There were a couple of tears rolling down his face, so I think it was a good punishment by Oklahoma. All right, the quick take now. Wow, yeah, okay, this comes with the rankings. Miami jumps Clemson in the latest college football playoff rankings. I think this is a big surprise, because even though Clemson played the Citadel, they blew out the Citadel just like they were expected to. And Miami did play a conference opponent in Virginia, but I don't think that should really make a difference if both teams win like they're supposed to. Like, Miami really struggled with Virginia, and at home, too. They were down early, they were down often, and it wasn't until late in the game, the, the score was much closer than it looked, that they were willing, were willing to break out. So I disagree with this by the committee. I don't know if they're going based on previous rankings or they're trying to compile an objective ranking after this game, which you can't really do because you're the ones who made your previous rankings. But either way, I, I don't think Miami and Clemson should have flip-flopped, but I guess it's not going to matter at the end of the day because they're going to play each other at the ACC championship game and the loser is probably out of the playoffs. So this I guess this doesn't matter much in the whole scheme of things, but it's a good, interesting discussion uh, for this week. Thank you so much for listening to The Wong Takes. Don't forget to check out the podcast everywhere, the website, bit.ly slash the long takes don't forget bit.ly slash the long takes the patreon at patreon.com slash the long takes email the show comments questions concerns at the long takes at gmail.com thank you as much for listening have a wonderful thanksgiving and i will see you next week